Game Changer, Episode 6, The Game of Work, Unlocking Employee Engagement and Energy, featuring Chuck Coonrod. Welcome to Game Changer, a series on using gamification to engage employees. Join us as industry experts discuss one of the hottest trends in business today. Using game thinking to engage employees in work, wellness, recruiting, and more. This is a special podcast series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, The Engaging Leader. And now, with nearly 20 years of experience helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees at Fortune 500 companies and other organizations, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Game Changers. This is the show for CEOs, HR executives, and other business leaders to learn about internal gamification. Over the course of this series, you'll hear examples and pitfalls, discover how to assess when it's an appropriate strategy, and learn to evaluate gamification partners and game design ideas. I am Jesse Leahy, and our guest today is Chuck Coonrod. Chuck has been called the grandfather of gamification. He is the author of the book, The Game of Work, first published in 1984 and frequently updated. Since 1973, Chuck has been teaching companies game-based principles that unlock keys to employee involvement, engagement, and energy. Chuck, welcome to Game Changer. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you today, Jesse. Chuck, you've been exploring game design principles and using game-based principles much longer, many years longer than most people have been talking about it. How did you originally come to some of those principles? Well, like many things, um, it was not what one would call strategically or well-planned. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, serendipitous and an epiphany that, um, that I suppose all of us have a couple of in their lives. This was a, a real, pardon the phrase, game changer for me. Um, I was doing consulting and calling on a company where they were building houses in a factory and they move them down the line like Henry Ford did with cars, only much slower. And I was in a second story window with a plant manager who was mid 50s, mid career, not happy about either and giving me the kids today lecture. Kids can't work. Kids don't care. Kids don't have the same values we have, which I guess has been every generation to every generation forever. And he brought me over to the window, pointed down on the factory floor and said, what are you and your magic box of stuff going to do about that? And what that was, was eight 20-somethings working on a house to describe their pace. You would need words like arthritic snails and wet cement. Um, (laughs) They look like they look like mimes uh, who had been uh, drugged. He said, what are you going to do about that? That's my problem. And if you've ever sold anything, you know that when somebody gives you an objection and you don't have the answer, you're pretty dumbfounded and time kind of stops. And I was in that category. And then I got rescued by the lunch bell because at that moment, the lunch bell rang. I watched these eight guys drop those hammers like they were electrified and take off like somebody hit them with high voltage cattle prods where they ran 50 yards down the factory floor and found a basketball hoop. And then I watched them play 42 minutes worth of four-on-four shirts and skins with the intensity of a Game 7 NBA Finals. Mm. 
when at 1242, magically, and again, no manager, no strategic plan, no instructional manual. They just knew what to do. Everybody had their job. The intensity was interesting. And at 1240 or 1242, they stopped the game, picked up their sack lunches and their Cokes, started walking back to the job where at one o'clock, they were back on the clock, arthritic snails and wet cement. And probably the most meaningful hour of my life, because I looked at this manager and I said, I don't think it's a raw material problem. I, I saw something here that, and we coined the tongue twister, or why is it that people will actually pay for the privilege of working harder than they'll work when they're paid? And we call that recreation. <laughs> um, and so I, I just said, what did I just see? What, what were the differences? And over a period of time and counseling with my team and staff, we identified five principles that we called the motivation of recreation. And it all came out of that principle. The interesting thing about that was that that occurred in 1977, a full 30 years before uh, people started claiming to have invented gamification. So we've taken an interesting look at that from a distance. Those five principles uh, that we identified were, number one, that the feedback was more frequent in recreation than it was in work. You got feedback every time you took a shot with that basketball or any time you'd swing a golf club or a tennis racket, flick a fly rod, pull a trigger on a shotgun or a rifle or a pistol. The feedback is almost instantaneous. Where at work, we maybe do sales weekly, P&Ls on a monthly basis, and the, and the overall bane of everybody's existence, the annual performance appraisal. Mm-hmm. So we realized we had a real gap in the feedback piece and that feedback really is a daily human nutrient and if people don't get the right amount they will change their behavior in many instances in a bad way so feedback was great number two is that the scorekeeping was i guess the big word would be contemporaneous and we just said that the players knew the score while the game was in progress so they could change their behavior to win before time ran out and the difference between hockey where that is true And figure skating, where you don't get the score until after you're done and you can't do anything about it, we found to be a significant element. So that's principle two. You know, uh, can I just interject something there, Chuck? One of the things that reminds me of is the similarity with uh, lean management and the whole Toyota production system and their emphasis on keeping the visual management, keeping the score right where everybody can see it. Now you're saying it's, if you can have it always be updated, that's even better, but at least it needs to be always visible. Absolutely, absolutely. High visibility communication of what that score is, uh, is critical. You know, if you ever watched a power failure in a stadium, when the, uh, when the scoreboard goes down, people just panic. They just, <laughs> just flip the you know, why would we play if, if the scorecard's not there? And, uh, and so high visibility and the, and the Toyota, there's a lot in the Toyota process that fits gamification. And, you know, like our work in the 70s, the Toyota process really started to gain popularity in the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 70s, we had something called management by objectives. It was all about defining goals and measuring progress. And so I don't. I've never really claimed that this is some unique thing that Chuck Coonrod 
invented. It's more that I discovered parallel universes, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the dichotomy between the way we treat these five principles in recreation and the way we just obliterate them in the workplace it's no wonder that we have two-thirds of the American workforce is disengaged in their work, and half of them are severely disengaged, according to Gallup. That's right. The interesting thing is we haven't changed that. We haven't really moved that number very much, which is also kind of scary. No, you're right. Well, go ahead, and uh, what's, what's number three? Number three is that the goals are more clearly defined in recreation than they are in work. And for me, goal clarity, the best example I can think of is imagine 22 kids in a school that don't speak the same language. None of them speak the same. No two of them speak the same language. You can give them two soccer goals, a ball, a referee, a yellow card, and a red card, and everybody gets it. Mm -hmm. And you can take 16 strategy thinkers and a supercomputer, put them in a room, and they have a hard time deciding where to go to lunch. So, All of the goals in recreation are clear. You don't start on a golf course until you see the map of the course. You don't stand up to the tee until you understand that it's a par four, par five, par three. What are the distances? What are the pitfalls? What are the things that that drive that? So the goal clarity is critical, and it kind of marries up to principle four, which is that the coaching is more consistent in recreation. And parenthetically, we say they don't change the rules on you in the middle of the game. So we're very committed recreationally to consistency of a bat. You know, Sammy Sosa gets in trouble for corking a bat. We want to make sure the square grooves and a wedge aren't too disadvantageous. Now the PGA's all uptight about belly anchored putters. And, you know, we, we're very big about consistency, whereas in work, Too often we go from today we're chasing profits, tomorrow we're chasing sales, now we're going to do quality, then we're going to be safe. And so by taking and and prioritizing the goals in business, you get that consistency of coaching. And last, but we don't believe least, is that there's a higher degree of personal choice in recreation than there is in work. And we found that people will acknowledge management's right to set goals and to set ultimate outcomes. What people will fight you to the death over is their ability to have their own methods to achieve those goals. And when you grant people personal choice, you get that all-important word that we call buy-in that everybody is chasing with every new process anybody has ever tried. So those are the five principles, and we identified those principles in 77, and they still remain to be the core principles in gamification today. They do ring true to me as I think about both work situations I've been in, uh, companies I've worked with, as well as just even in games that I have liked over the years. I think back to... When I was a kid, as a very young kid, you like games like Candyland or the card game War. But by the time you're five or seven, you, you really are moving past them because they don't have any element of personal choice. So just as an example there, that's one of the five where if you don't have personal choice, it's really not a fun game. Yes. And that obviously links to 
some of the intrinsic motivation factors of what makes work engaging for us. If we have a level of autonomy, we're more likely to be intrinsically motivated in, in the work that we're doing. Absolutely. One of, one of the things, one of the pitfalls uh, in, that I'm seeing in the gamer's approach to this, if you will, because since, nine, since 2004 or 2007, depending on what source you look for, the term gamification came out of the video game players and that discipline. Uh, has attempted to impact on workflows and processes in business. That's really gamification in a nutshell as we look at it today. The interesting element that I've watched the gamers miss is this element of personal choice because it's inherent in video games in that if I pick World of Warfare, I've demonstrated my choice. You can't put a gun to my head and force me to play play World of Warfare. That's not the way the system works. But when you try to bring the elements of gamification into the workplace, the thing that many of the technologists have missed is this element of providing choice to the players and to the employees. So it's a big part of what our listeners need to take into consideration as they do gamification in their business. You know, it's interesting, that example of World of Warfare, which I have not personally played, but I've heard that there it appeals to lots of different types of people. Uh, and part of it is because they get to make such a wide range of choices inside the game, too. There's some people that uh, really want to go in and and compete and kill people or whatever you do in World of Warfare. And then there's others that are really more about exploring that world, which does remind me, I think every time I've ever used a flight simulator game, video game, I've always just tried to go see, can I, can I drive this thing off the map? I mean, I just want to go explore Mm -hmm. this virtual world. So yeah, you got, you got the choice of whether or not to play at all. And then inside you have a variety of choices to make. And so you're saying that's one of the downfalls, especially of workplace-based gamification, where that's not something that's often designed into the system. That's true. And I mean, even to your point about being able to choose my own avatar, you know, do I want to be, do I want to be, you know, Mr. Muscle? Do I want to be, which one of America's heroes do I want to be like? I get to pick and choose those things. There's a high degree of choice in the electronic gamification. And when people bring it to the workplace, there's sort of a historical absence of choice um, that workers get. And what we found is in our work is that when you get in and ask people about their methodology, how do we get to this point? How How would you help us get to the goal? You get engagement. I mean, I know that sounds that sounds simplistic, but in in life, I think most of us would register the fact that we have simple principles. You know, fiscal responsibility, uh, uh, how you get wealthy in in America. Pretty simple principles, and I think that if we stay with the simple principles in a gamification process, you're going to get much greater acceptance. Now, you've been practicing these principles since the 70s, and from from your opening illustration, 
it was not video game based and uh, there were very few video games in the market at that point. And so I'm guessing that for a long time, your work was maybe not so influenced by video games. And I, I'm wondering if you've seen your work change over the over the years as uh, generally speaking, when, when people talk about gamification now, they're they're talking about what we've learned from the world of video games. And I wonder if you've seen that affect your work as well over the years. Well, it has a little bit. Interestingly enough, the first IBM personal computer was done in 1981. When I saw Lotus 1, 2, 3 get introduced in 1984, I absolutely looked like an, an aborigine watching a Polaroid picture develop. <laughs> I, whoa! I hope that's politically correct. Now, but I was like, whoa! Whoa! These, you know, life, my life just got great. You no, know, and... Uh, uh, and what's been really interesting is um, we recognize that there's a kinesthetic learning sensation. And that's, you can get that in the joystick, you can get that off a computer keyboard, but you can also get that with a piece of paper and a ruler and a four-function calculator putting together the most simple, visible scorecards. And so, honestly, Jesse, that's where we started. You know, it was like plot, draw a line, plot, run an average, do a little average, uh, so elemental. But we find that even today that people trust what they can touch. And if you can get somebody on that, talking about the Toyota line and in, in, in contemporaneous scorekeeping, if you get somebody who is over there almost literally marking on a wall when they have completed the next run or somebody is going back and saying, you know, we just had another safe day in this plant and we're going to go to the wall and put up safe one more safe day. We're going to move from 100 to 101 safe days of operation. Those kinds of kinesthetic learnings are really critical to getting people's engagement. Love people love to trust what they can touch, and so um, if you watch somebody with a controller or you watch somebody play the Wii games, I mean any of this stuff that gyroscopically allows you to play tennis and bowl and golf and all of the things that we have right now, all of that is emblematic or symptomatic, if you will, of this kinesthetic learning. Um, and think of the huge engagement that you get from people of all ages. What's kind of interesting is that you'll watch people who have never played on a controller or a joystick, you give them a Wii controller in their hand and, and tell them to use it like they would a golf club or a tennis racket, and they are drawn in like quicksand. Hmm. Um, and so how you, and it, it's, just to me, it's just a manifestation of engagement at these really simple, at these simple levels. Just a quick pause from this interview with Chuck Coonrod to tell listeners about a game we're playing that has some fun throughout this series. First, we're giving away five copies of Chuck's book, The Game of Work. To enter to win one of the five copies of the book, send me a tweet at Jesse Leahy mentioning this episode number six 
this episode's clue, which is the letter D as in Daniel, and whether you'd prefer hard copy or a Kindle ebook if you win. We'll pick a winner at random from the first 50 emails we receive. Also, there will be other tasks and clues in each of the first 14 episodes in the Game Changer series, as well as in Engaging Leader Podcast Episode 38, featuring Kevin Werbach. From those 15 clues, if you can be the first person to guess the secret phrase, you will win a $100 gift card from Amazon. And everyone who guesses it correctly will be honored on our Game Changer Genius Board. For employers, what are some useful areas to apply a gamification approach? Uh, Do you have any case studies to share with us? Well, sure, if we had another two days, we could do <laughs> case study. Um, there are, you know, obvious, there are some obvious ones. People have said, you know, the sales, the sales game is a big one. And one of the things that we've been very successful with is a scorecard that we call mean days between sales. Uh, for the person who's not going to sell every day, for the person who's not in a call center where they're going to have... Uh, multiple transactions, but for the large process seller, for the real estate seller, or for the car salesman, for the person who's doing large-scale industrial stuff, we have designed the game, if you will, the scorecard, so that a person goes back and looks at their history, sees how frequently they've been successful, and then starts to measure how long it takes them to get the very next transaction. And whether that individual is getting a transaction every five days in some situations, or maybe it's 50 days, the game allows them to post each day as getting closer to their objective. Um, We've seen two and 300% improvements in sales as a result of that. Looking at how well you do each transaction in a production field. One of the things, we did a a major amount of work in the soft drink industry with both of the big two and and a number of others. And one of the things that happens in any production process where you're filling stuff up is that you have changeover. And it's easy to produce if you're making 12-ounce diet soft drinks and those things run for a day or a day and a half on the same product line in the same container, you can be really productive. But when you're trying to run three liter grape, the sales of which uh, are not significant enough to even matter, but we still have it in the product line, you have to change that product over, you get different stuff in the filler, you gotta change the size. So changeover times are very, very critical in terms of production. Going back to your point about the Toyota process, once we have several opportunities to track what's happened in the past, we then have an inherent goal setting process, which is just to be better than we used to be. And you celebrate doing that changeover in less time and with less complexity than you did in the previous area. That hangs there, somebody brings it up. It's what we uh, are intending to do. We know the game before we start and we celebrate 
better than we used to be. And those are some of the things that you have to keep it simple, tie it absolutely to the business at hand, and make sure that we're not, that the game or the gamification or the process is not something that draws us away from the business, but something that draws us into the business. Speaking of the potential for unintended consequences, let's say drawing away from the business, are there some pitfalls that we should be aware of? Well, you know, I think there are probably three of them. Number one is the one we just talked about, and that is that you don't want to go do a game for game's sake. Um, somebody, somebody sits down and says, boy, you know, I think we can do, I think we can do Fast and Furious 4 uh, relative to our maintenance guys, and we can get them jacked up and, and they'll be excited. Uh, but if they're not doing their job with the game, then that's a, then that's a huge problem. The second probably biggest pitfall that I see is that you have to make sure that the feedback that's coming from the game is the same feedback that's coming from my coach. Hmm. So if, if I'm out and I'm building up badges or I'm running up a leaderboard or any of the other things that are analogous to uh, Mario collecting his little gold coins, if you remember... If I'm doing that, but I've got a manager who is not engaged in that process and is saying, oh, that's a bunch of young kid crap that you're just doing, and I don't think it's driving our production up. You know, Why don't you forget the computer and get your butt over here and let's get to work? If you've got feedback coming from the person who's going to do your performance appraisal and your income uh, changes that's not consistent with the game, then you've got a fundamental error. So we always work in rolling out the game of work from the CEO down. And you have to cascade the implementation um, throughout the organization from the top so that I'm looking at the feedback and the gift of feedback, if you think about it that way, as a management privilege uh, because they're closer to the information and then I'm going to share that gift of feedback with the people who are actually doing the work because I want to improve the workplace experience for the team. That's interesting that you, you come back to this principle of feedback, which was the first of your five principles. Is it first because it's perhaps, does that signify a priority there? Is it most the most important? I have to confess John Wooden said, it's what you learn after you think you know it all. It really matters. (laughs) And when we wrote the book, Jesse, we had goals first and scorekeeping second. And feedback was, I wouldn't say it was an afterthought, but it wasn't really a primary discovery for us at the early epiphany. But the more we implemented and the more we shared, and the more we recognized what it took to change, and the more we saw the difference between work and recreation, feedback became our number one principle, because it is the difference between work and enjoyment is the feedback that you get. And if you've ever been involved in a process where 
you were working against a deadline, you were trying to get a broadcast put together, you were trying to open up a grocery store, that's kind of my industry and I came out of, you see that you got the, you have this huge energy and this huge effort because people are getting very frequent feedback about what's going on. I loaded grocery trucks for three summers to work my way through Michigan State. And I mean, this is, you don't even want to know how long ago that was. <laughs> uh, you know, I like to try to tell people the game of work was a junior achievement project. In junior, <laughs> but it's not working so well for me. Uh, but, you know, we used to have we used to have ten thousand pounds per man hour that we were loading in these trucks. So you'd load a forty thousand pound truck in four hours. I can still remember that. But it was a big deal to make those numbers and get that stuff done. And we celebrated it as we finished out the shift. Yeah, I suppose that that had an impact on how my thinking came to to be. But feedback, and here's another thing: I don't want to take you down too many trails, but If you think about it in our society, the denial or the withholding of feedback is the most severe psychological punishment we inflict on someone. So you can go back and look at solitary confinement. You can look at brainwashing as the first step or solitary confinement as the first step in in the brainwashing process. The Greeks called it being ostracized. Our military academies call it the silent treatment. Around most houses, they call it the big chill. You know, you walk in, hi, how are you? Fine. What's wrong? Nothing. Can I do anything? No. So when you take feedback away, it's, it's painful. And there's lots of research around that. What's interesting is that that's true every place except at work, where we think it's standard operating procedure. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. No news is good news. What you don't know can't hurt you. And so if you go around and look at either the formality of a Gallup survey for employee engagement, or just go out and talk to folks, you will find that no one feels over-appreciated. So we have a huge feedback gap and appreciation gap in America. Well, I've heard Gallup report that the least engaged employees are those that get zero feedback from their managers And the ones that get, even if they only get negative feedback, they are actually pretty well engaged. They're they're well over that 50% level. And of course, the the most, as you can guess, are the ones that get both positive and negative feedback. But that negative feedback is much, much, much better than no feedback in terms of engaging people. Absolutely. That's one of the, we have six principles of feedback. And that's the sixth one is that people would rather take negative feedback than get no feedback at all. And we see it in kids who act up when you come home at night and they try to tell you about the room being clean and what they did in preschool today. And you go, I'm sorry, I'm reading a paper, I'm cooking, I don't have time. You know, the next thing you're going to hear is from that kid is broken glass, a sibling screamer, a hacksaw blade on a dining room table leg. But that kid's going to get some feedback. So that's why we, we are so zealous, I guess, about changing the way we deliver feedback in the workplace. And the word for us, the the key word, the key adjective, is that the feedback needs to be appropriate. So it's not that it's all rose-colored glasses and all Pollyanna and, yes, Johnny, you know, and everybody gets a ribbon for showing up. It's not that. It's that the feedback is appropriate 
to the behavior, and the behavior is what drives the results. Chuck, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, thank you for asking. Our webpage uh, is gameofwork.com. You can email us at game at gameofwork.com. And one of the things that people can do with that email is to request uh, an executive summary of our book, The Game of Work. I'm happy to send that along to them electronically. And our 800 number is 800-438-6074. Happy to engage with anybody out there who's struggling with their own gamification and see what kind of help we can give them over the phone and see what else we can do to share this uh, almost 40 years now that we've been playing the game. And uh, one of the great joys of, of having that much experience is to share it with people and help them avoid some of the pitfalls that we've, uh, we've dropped into over the years. So we love it. We love giving back. And uh, we appreciate the uh, resurgence that gamification is enjoying today. Fantastic. Chuck Coonrod is the author of The Game of Work. Chuck, thank you for joining us on Game Changer. Thank you for having us. And we'll provide the contact information and links that Chuck mentioned in our show notes, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash GC6, as in Game Changer Episode 6. That wraps up today's show, Game Changers. Don't miss our next episode when we'll feature our next interview with a plug-and-play gamification solution provider focused on health and wellness. We'll be talking to Blake Squires, the CEO of Movable, which is an activity awareness program with social and rewards components. Don't miss it. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the weekly leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share more ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Until next time, remember, life is short, so keep it fun. You can find both Game Changer and Engaging Leader podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. To stay up on the latest news and trends in internal gamification, join the Game Changer group on LinkedIn. We'll automatically direct you to our LinkedIn group when you go to engagingleader.com group. Subscribe to our e-digest at engagingleader.com newsletter. When you do, we'll send you a free copy of Jesse's ebook, Eight Communication Tools for Leaders. You can also follow Jesse on Twitter, at Jesse Leahy, and like us at facebook.com slash engagingleader. Game Changer is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that helps mid-sized and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, and Peter McIsaac, who composed our theme music. 